Welcome to Two Homes, your podcast about nature, sustainability and self-care. I'm Julia and I talk about love and how we can protect what we love. Today I talk to David Abel, an award-winning reporter who covers fisheries and environmental issues for the Boston Globe. We talk about his latest documentary titled Entangled, a film about the right whale, one of the world's most endangered species, the fishing industry and climate change. But what makes the right whale right? Back in history, when whaling was a common practice, it was the right whale to hunt. It moved slowly and would float after being killed. Nowadays, whaling is forbidden in the most countries around the world. Anyway, the right whale still has some challenges to face. What exactly and what are upcoming solutions to protect these marine mammals? Join in to learn and stay until the very end to hear David following his natural habit as a journalist starting to interview me. Welcome, David, to my podcast, <laughs> Two Homes. I'm very excited to have you and I'm really intrigued to ask you some questions. <laughs> Great. Happy to be with you. I'm starting with a short little breathing exercise just to fully arrive in this moment. So to all our listeners, if you can, close your eyes, sit straight, and then take a deep breath in and out. Feel how the fresh air flows into your body and exhale all the old air and everything what no longer serves you. Take another deep breath in and out. And then give yourself a little smile that you took the time to reconnect with your body. And then gently open your eyes. Welcome back. So, my first question, what does home mean for you? Well, um, there's the physical presence of where I live, and I actually have this year uh, had a very fortunate uh, ability to spend a lot of this long uh, pandemic in a uh, separate place from my, my home, uh, which is... Um, a rather cramped two-bedroom condominium in uh, the city of Boston, and I have uh, two little two little boys, and so living here uh, is not always uh, very easy, uh, especially during a pandemic when we're all confined to the house for a lot of time and the kids are not in school, and so we were fortunate enough to. Um, be able to stay at a cousin's empty beach house on Cape Cod, uh, where we have these really majestic views of uh, the cobalt-colored 
Cape Cod Bay, uh, where the tides uh, go out almost a mile or uh, more than a kilometer out to sea. And you have all of these tide pools and these incredibly um, uh, colorful rainbows. And in fact, uh, for the film that we're going to talk about, I shot a, a number of time lapses, which are in the film, uh, from the uh, from the porch mm-hmm. of this house, and um, and that uh, brought us a lot of solace and peace over a, a very difficult year. And we'll be heading back there uh, in a, a week or so. Um, but we've um, been back and forth, so home is two steps, to, two feet in different places in some ways right now. Mm-hmm. Thank you for that. So for a start, do you want to tell us a little bit more about yourself? Who is David Abel? Uh, well, um, it depends how you define your identity. I, I define it in different ways. Um, uh, I'm a dad, uh, number one. Uh, I'm a writer, uh, number two. I'm a journalist, I'm someone who asks questions and looks for ways to cast light into dark places and, um, and give voice to the voiceless. And I'm also a filmmaker. And that uh, is a relatively new medium for me. I've been making films uh, since 2013, uh, so seven years now. And I started making films in some ways by happenstance when I was taking a year off from my job as a reporter at the Boston Globe, uh, where I was able to do something that is like nirvana for a lot of journalists, which is I got to spend a year studying anything I wanted through a fellowship at Harvard University Mm -hmm. here um, right outside Boston. And uh, one of the things I was able to study was how to make documentary films. And to make a long story short, my first film was born out of the horrific attack on the Boston Marathon, where I was um, standing on the finish line trying to complete a class project while I was at Harvard, uh, which was a short documentary about the first little person to run the Boston Marathon. And by happenstance, was waiting for her to complete what was going to be this incredibly triumphant moment where she was going to become the first little person to complete the Boston Marathon. And, um, and all of a sudden, while I was standing right there waiting for this really powerful moment, two bombs uh, exploded, one of them just a few feet from where I was standing. And I was very lucky not to get injured, but I um, uh, witnessed the horrific aftermath of that. And that led to my first film. Wow, that's really touching. Um, And I feel like it was almost kind of meant to be that you're going into this way of documentaries. So we met at the online Q&A panel discussion of your latest documentary called Entangled, a film about how climate change has accelerated a collusion between fishery and one of the most endangered species, the right whale. So can you give us some more insights of the documentary and what was your personal motivation to make that movie? Sure. Uh, So the title stems from the primary source of death of this 
uh, whale known as the North Atlantic right whale, uh, which, as you noted, is one of the most endangered species on the planet. Uh, there are now roughly about 350 of them left. And and uh, the, the film was born out of previous work that I had done both for the newspaper and uh, and in previous films. So in some ways, this is the capstone of a trilogy of films I've made about how climate change is affecting our region here in the northeastern United States, known as New England, and particularly the waters off of uh, this region, which historically were incredibly abundant with variety of species that uh, were famous around the world. So the first film I made was called Sacred Cod, which was a film about how, uh, in large part, the warming of this body of water off of New England called the Gulf of Maine, which is warming faster than just about any other body of water on the planet, led to the collapse of this species, the cod, which is what brought settlers from Europe to this area hundreds of years ago and what made this area quite wealthy and built a great network of institutions here. And then it suddenly collapsed and hundreds of fishermen whose families were fishing for generations lost their way of life. Um, And then I made a film called Lobster War, which was also about how climate change is affecting another iconic species here called American Lobster. And that film was actually about how the warming waters led to a, an explosion of the lobster population because the lobster only exists within a narrow bear, band of temperatures. And it was sort of the sweet spot for the lobster fishery in this area between the United States and Canada uh, called the Gray Zone, which are these waters that both the United States and Canada have claimed since the end of what we call the Revolutionary War, the War of Independence um, that ended in the United States in 17, uh, um, that ended in the independence of the United States in 1776. And since then, uh, there has been uh, some conflict over who rightfully can claim these waters, but nobody really cared about that conflict until about a decade ago when the lobster population suddenly became very valuable in those waters. And lobstermen from Canada who long ceded the waters to the American lobstermen decided that they would uh, reclaim their sovereignty and start fishing those waters, creating this conflict, arguably precipitated by uh, climate change. And then uh, while reporting and making that film, I learned about how uh, lobster lines, primarily these, these lines that go from the surface of the sea to the bottom of the sea, were the primary cause of entanglement and death or serious injury of this rare species of whale. Um, and the more I learned about it, I thought it would be useful to uh, look more deeply into it. And then I learned also about how climate change was affecting um, their food source and how it led to a 90% decline in their food source in various parts of the Gulf of Maine here, which caused the whales to migrate in places where they hadn't been before. And that led to a surge in the number of whales dying. And so that led me to make this film uh, titled Entangled, which again was primarily about the entanglement in fishing gear 
here in the Gulf of Maine and further to the north in Canada. And uh, we, we just recently released that film and we're now showing it at film festivals and virtual screenings. So that's a long answer to your question. <laughs> but you pretty much covered already uh, a few more questions I was going to ask. So that's perfect. <laughs> Do you have any data or facts for our listeners about how many ride worlds are left? Um, so as recently as 2010, there were believed to be nearly 500 right whales, which was actually a success story because uh, like a lot of major whale species, right whales had been heavily hunted for centuries and, uh, and they were believed to possibly have been extinct in the 1930s and 1940s. And they weren't really rediscovered again until the 1980s. Uh, in any significant amounts. And they were only then believed to be uh, uh, maybe two or 300 at that point. And through protections, particularly to reduce the impact of ships striking the whales and killing the whales, the federal government here arguably helped the species rebound. And it reached their peak again 10 years ago. Uh, but through that time, fishing lines that are used by the lobster industry and related uh, trap pot um, uh, fisheries like crab fisheries started to use more synthetic and stronger ropes that don't break very easily or don't break at all. And increasingly, uh, whales started to get entangled in these ropes to the point that 85% of all North Atlantic right whales have Show, have scarring that shows signs of entanglement. And at least 60% have been entangled more than twice. And that had a serious impact on the species. And last year, around this time, the scientists in the federal government estimated there were roughly 411 right whales left. And just a few weeks ago, they announced that their latest estimate was closer to 356 left. And these are all estimates because we don't know exactly uh, the number, but uh, we do know that they've been dying at unprecedented numbers in recent years. Mm -hmm. You mentioned in the panel discussion quite an interesting but also alarming fact about how many whales have been born to survive an extinction and how many are born in fact. Can you go into that a little bit deeper again? So yes, one of the challenges for this species is not just the catastrophic numbers of whales that have been dying, but unfortunately, the insufficient number of whales being born every year. And so in recent years, scientists suggest could also be in part because of entanglement in fishing gear when female whales are trapped in these lobster lines They often have to spend a lot of energy dragging these heavy traps across thousands of miles, and that makes it uh, causes them stress and makes it harder for them to feed and uh, less likely to reproduce. And there are a, a potential of other explanations about what could be the cause of their lack of reproduction. But two years ago, in 2018, after a, a number of years of declining births, there was an unprecedented zero births. And that was considered, you know, 
also catastrophic. And that came a year after a record number of deaths. There were 17 deaths uh, the year before that. So, and scientists say that the species is unlikely to avoid extinction um, if it has more than one unnatural death in a year. So uh, it, the trajectory is certainly not good for this whale. It would become the first large um, whale in modern history to go extinct, if that is what actually happens. But uh, we've seen, I think, uh, after 2018, there were a moderate number of births. I think there were seven born. Last year, there were 10 born. But unfortunately, we lost two of those calves um, one of which died only a few hours after being born as a result of being hit by a ship. And the other one was also hit by a ship. So another astonishing fact about this is that since 2010, all known deaths of right whales have been as a result of us, as a result of human beings. Yeah, pretty alarming um, and scaring. And there's a statement in the documentary, if we save the right whales, we save the oceans. Do you want to explain that sentence a little bit? Um, I actually don't even recall uh, that sentence in the film. Um, but uh, I mean, I think uh, I'm reading a beautiful book right now called Fathoms. Uh, the author, Rebecca Giggs, uh, is Australian and it's all about, it's the subtitle of the book is The World and the Whale. And this book, um, as well as the film, touches on how, you know, the sea is just a um, vast uh, space of what we think of as almost pristine nature. But like the right whales, we as human beings have had a major and uh, increasing and sadly indelible and, and deleterious impact on the ocean so much that miles deep, far from land, you can find all kinds of signs of humanity, uh, including chemicals that we have introduced uh, and are polluting the sea. And, and the only reason that the right whale population, as well as other whales, had been in serious decline um, is mainly because of us. And so, um, so whales are, in many ways, this iconic species that we all kind of look to as a bellwether of our ability to uh, protect nature and the majesty of, of our natural world. And sadly, our impact as uh, human beings on nature. And in this case, with these whales, our impact has been catastrophic, pronounced, and accelerating in its uh, effect on the potential future of this species to survive. I'll throw out one more stat. Um, one of the reasons that scientists are so concerned about this particular whale is because the number of females has, has fallen off a cliff and they're now believed to be something like only 80 or 85 breeding females left. And when 
you don't have breeding females, the population will become functionally extinct, which scientists say could happen in less than 20 years. Wow. Mm. Uh, we talked about the harsh reality of different problems the whales are facing. So now I want to yeah, go deeper into the more positive side of it and discuss some of the solutions. What alternative technologies are currently used for the fishing industry? Um, well, right now, um, the main ways of fishing are what is still the way these fishermen have fished for generations is still the way they fish. But there are some promising possibilities for how that could change uh, and that we could both sustain this vibrant part of our economy, the lobster fishery, which plays a huge role here in New England, uh, where I live, and also reduce the harm of human beings to the right whale. And the promise is this technology called ropeless fishing, which we uh, represent in the film. And to make a long story short, you eliminate the buoy lines through creating devices like balloons that can be triggered from a fishing boat to bring the lobster traps from the bottom of the ocean up to the surface. And uh, there is a lot of new technology. The technology has advanced quite a bit. Uh, it's proven that it could work, but it's very expensive. And uh, there are other technological problems like fishermen finding their traps uh, when there are a lot of other traps at the bottom of the ocean. So the technology is not being used yet commercially here but in the coming years, uh, especially as we take more action to protect the whales by closing fisheries and preventing fishermen from going to sea with their traditional fishing gear, they may have incentives to actually start using this experimental technology called ropeless fishing. What about weaklings or slash break of lines? Yeah, no, those are, that's a great question. So just uh, uh, shortly before we started speaking, I was on a online hearing about new regulations here in the state of Massachusetts, where I live, uh, where we have a thriving and have had a thriving lobster fishery. And one of the set of new regulations to protect right whales will involve uh, ropes that are easier to break at uh, lower pressures. So it's believed that a whale could free itself from rope at approximately 1,700 pounds of pressure. Um, I don't know how to translate that into kilograms, but the um, I think there are 2.2 pounds per kilogram or vice versa. And so there is now actually a plan to require fishermen here to use a different kind of rope that will break uh, at that pressure. And there is also uh, conversations about using traditional rope, the existing rope, but putting these attachments in the rope that you'd sort of separate the rope in two and you'd create 
a weak link in the rope that would be easier for the rope to break if it was um, entangled in a whale. So those are other options. Mm -hmm. So the documentary also shows the process for the law to regulate the fishery whale issue. Uh, what does the law try to achieve with that and how is the current status with that? Well, um, right now uh, there are only limited protections for the whales um, and there has been an effort which the film chronicles uh, trying to reduce the impact of human beings on whales by reducing the number of lobster lines in the water and other measures. And unfortunately, though, there's been a lot of political resistance uh, by fishermen and fishermen tend to have a very powerful voice and a lot of friends among politicians. And so as of now, after more than a year and a half of effort to change laws and, and pass new rules that would increase the number of protections for these whales, we uh, have not seen any action. There have been no new laws and uh, arguably the Trump administration is blocking the passage of these new or the adoption of these new regulations because it would not be politically helpful for them. Uh, so a last try to protect the whales I want to go into is the Whale Alert app. So it's to reduce little whale ship strikes. Um, for who is the app in the end and how does it work exactly? Well, um, I'm honestly not that familiar with this whale app. Uh, there is, I believe, an NGO that has created this app, uh, although I'm not 100% sure if it is this NGO that I'm thinking of, Oceana. But there are, I think, a number of online tools, but I think this whale app uh, alerts mariners or uh, captains of, of fishing vessels or not just or large, larger uh, vessels about where the whales were recently seen and alerts them to speed restrictions. But I, I, I can't speak too much about that app. Uh, I don't know that much about it. Yeah, all right. So what can we do as individuals to help the right whales? Well, uh, that's, that's a, hard, um, it's a hard question to answer. And I think what I, I've said here in recent months, especially as we were leading up to a important uh, vote for the new national leadership here in the United States, I, I recommended that people vote and they vote for candidates that guide their policies by science and make decisions that are based on science. And the hope is that will ultimately produce better policies that will be enlightened and reduce the impact on uh, our natural world. Uh, but there are all kinds of bills here in the United States that aim to increase protections for the whales and also increase the amount of federal support for uh, the kind of technology we were talking about that could make it easier to avoid a conflict with the whales like ropeless fishing. So people should be politically active and voice their support for protecting 
species like the right whale and other endangered species if that is what they care to do. Mm -hmm. Yeah, perfect. So what is your personal outcome of that film, like making it? What is your personal learning by reporting and making that movie? Huh. Um, well, it's every, every film and every story uh, that I report, whether it's for the newspaper uh, where I work or for a longer film, there is a, uh, a great amount of learning um, that goes through the process of making something uh, from nothing, in, in essence. And there is, of course, uh, the facts that you learn along the way. Um, there are the relationships that you create. There are learning the new paths of how films might come into the world through a pandemic. And then there are things you learn about yourself, like how to cope with rejection, how to cope with loss, how to cope with success, and how to be persistent when, you know, things look dark. We um, completed the first rough cut of this film the day before the pandemic caused everything to shut down here. And we lost all of our funders uh, within a few days. Um, we uh, had a broadcaster that we had uh, planned to work with and they pulled out. So we were sort of left adrift and had to figure out how do you, how do you complete this when, you know, the world has suddenly take a very sharp turn uh, in a direction nobody could have expected. And so we kept on with what we originally set out to do and we finally completed the film um, and we didn't know how it would be released but we learned to bring the film into a virtual world one without theatrical screenings which is what we'd be normally doing at this time or or going to film festivals and uh, we found audiences in ways that we hadn't expected and that has been uh, quite gratifying and led to all kinds of interesting connections and, and ways to uh, share our film and the story with other people. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely a journey. <laughs> what advice could you give to aspiring filmmakers if they want, like if they had a message and they want to share it with the world, but they're quite at the very start, kind of the average Joe who just wants to get the foot into the door. So yeah, what tips would you give? Well, I would say that you should uh, watch a lot of other films to try to get a sense of how they're how they're shot and how they're made. And then I would say if you have a a, a really passionate feeling for something, um, find partners who can help fill the gaps in your ability to do things and focus on the things that you can do really well and persist in doing them no matter what uh, tries to push you off your path and just keep at it. And if you really believe in your project, if you think you have an important idea, uh, your enthusiasm will hopefully rub off on other people and you'll find uh, what you need to get your project done. So I think uh, believing in it But it's not enthusiasm alone. You need to find partners who can help you 
get the film made in the way that can allow it to be brought to a greater viewership, hopefully. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Thank you. So where can people watch your documentaries and especially your latest documentary? And how can they get in touch with you? Sure. The website for the film is entangled-film.com, which hopefully you can post with the podcast. Um, yeah, sure. And then our film is now uh, living on our Vimeo platform and could be found on vimeo.com slash on demand slash entangled film. And I can send you a link um, to that that you can post. Yeah, perfect. Yeah, we'll definitely, or I put definitely everything in the show notes so our listeners can find it there. My last question, or two questions if you want, uh, according to Two Homes, the name of the podcast, as home stands for the beautiful nature and as ourself as well. So what are your personal go-to tips when it comes to how to love and protect nature and how to love and protect ourselves? Hmm. Well, it's, it's an interesting question and it's hard to just give an off-the-cuff answer that doesn't come across as glib or, um, or not fully thought through. But I mean, I think that You know, especially now, especially at a time when, uh, at least here in this country and in a lot of Europe, we're all living very unusual in unusual circumstances, homebound, um, and do not have the normal uh, routines and can't see family and friends as much. I, I think you have to be thoughtful about what it is that moves you and that um, animates you and makes you feel alive in this world and focus on those things and that will hopefully keep you feeling like there is meaning and that will hopefully give you a sense of solace and peace uh, and love thank you that was beautiful <laughs> Thank you. Um, is there anything else you want to add or yeah, put out there to our listeners? Um, no, but thank you so much for your interest in our film and for taking the time uh, to tell our story. I can also share some things with you so that you have more to work with if you want to put stuff online. So maybe that'll yeah. help you. Cool. Um, who is your listenership? Um, I wonder if you could tell me a little bit about your podcast um yeah i mean um we're still growing <laughs> uh, i released the podcast at the first lockdown here in new zealand and i always knew i want to make a podcast about nature sustainability and self-love and yeah i finally found that time and that I say inner peace to really yeah go through everything and i uh, i am from germany so i still have listeners around Europe so it's an audience there but I'm also growing in New Zealand um, which is pretty cool and I even have some people in the States so it's pretty around the world right now um, which I'm quite surprised that the few um, yeah a few places I know um, there is an audience 
just out of the <laughs> state uh, statistics. <laughs> it's a topic which definitely is important for everyone out in the world. And we all should learn more about how to, yeah, how to love and protect nature and how to love and protect ourselves. And um, yeah, I'm trying to interview guests like you and people who try to to make a change and to yeah make a difference and to share that with the world. So that's um, pretty much my mission. <laughs> and yeah, I'm still growing and learning and <laughs> it's pretty exciting. <laughs> Great. How did a German end up in, uh, in New Zealand? Um, there's a podcast episode. <laughs> I canceled everything in Germany, my job, my flight, everything, and decided to make a yoga teacher training in Bali. And from that place, I, yeah, I originally wanted to go to Australia because it was closer and I wanted to keep my CO2 footprint as low as possible. And I actually wanted to sail there, but with the bushfires back then, it was just ridiculous to really think about going there. Uh, so, yeah, and I always wanted to go to New Zealand at one point, and I changed my mind and booked a ticket, and that's how I ended up in New Zealand. And from that point on, it, it just, yeah, I went with the flow, and I met my partner here, and uh, we got into lockdown together. <laughs> and, yeah, and right now I'm very grateful to be here. I think it's, yeah, probably the best place to be right now um with the whole pandemic and i yeah i can't really go home anyway so yeah or back to germany well you're in a lucky place yeah <laughs> so and i don't you really don't, want to want to be in new zealand yeah <laughs> yeah it definitely worked well for me so well nice to chat with you yeah totally so thank you thank you too and i'll put all the important links into the show notes. I, yeah, I want to say thank you to all our listeners and spread the word, watch the movie <laughs> and have a good day. Great. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye. Bye.